was just having a nice moment with my partner, Lacey Dillmore. She was telling me about her session earlier and just saying that, that there was a moment where she realized that something had gone on profoundly with her client and Lacey recognizing the profound moment, remarking back, hey, you know, that's really, that's really special. And as I'm being told this story, I've been looking at Lacey and I know how much we all struggle to see ourselves as beautiful. And I see her as beautiful all the time. And that is a party of one. <laughs> and I'm, I, I'm, you know, I have my struggles also. And certainly a huge graveyard of struggles um, leading up to now. But the truth is, is that we see each other uh, at times more accurate than we see ourselves. And we're able to recognize beauty in other people so easily. And so when she said the part to her client, hey, God, you know, that's really special. That's how I feel and how I felt about Lacey's beauty in that moment. And that, you know, you should really know that you have this beauty. You should really be in touch with the fact that you are beautiful. And we all should. And this is my prayer for us all. Is that we see ourselves in a way that we can see others as beautiful. My other realization of the day was this morning in meditation. I, um, a garbage truck went by. And I don't have any beef with the garbage truck normally. Though they go by where we live frequently. And so uh, it's, it's a bit difficult to ever sleep in around here. We live on kind of a major, minor thoroughfare. Anyway, this garbage truck went by. And I got worried in that moment that it was going to wake up Lacey unnecessarily, who's been needing her rest. And that it might wake up my daughter, who's in bed. And at the same time that that all arised, and this sort of um, lack of acceptance of this noisy truck going by, at the same time, this notion of that this truck that's making this noise is coming to take away my undesirables. And it's doing so running on clean energy. And that that if my garbage piled up, how undesirable that would be for our household. And this arises with the anger about this moment potentially waking up my partner and my daughter. Plus, I'm in touch with maybe this energy that I'm feeling, even though, even though... I came up with these two different scenarios that are kind of in opposition. One is this garbage truck is out to get me and ruin my day. And can't they just shush? 
And then the other, which is like, yeah, but they're doing this great job. They're not thinking about you at all and do it, carrying out their job and doing you a direct service. And then also it's like, but this also is a planet we're talking about. So where, when the garbage truck takes it away, as this bumper sticker my mom used to have said, when the, when you take the trash away, where is away? Now, where is that? So all of this information is arising at once, and I'm left in a place where I just can't have a hardened opinion about this. You know, I, there are so many potentials that are going on in this moment that the one that initiated this all, at least seemingly, which was the, oh, no, the anger, the, the frustration around people being woken up by this thing. That is the one I feel like that we lock on to most of the time. And then we start building a narrative around garbage trucks and we start having this, maybe this extra bit bubbling up in us as we drive by a garbage truck because of a moment like this where we just locked into a narrative that this asshole (laughs) is driving too early on his job route. That's what we do mostly in our life is we lock onto that and we have this whole relationship going with a concept that may or may not exist. Most cases doesn't exist and is completely fabricated by the mind. And so all of this arising at once, these three scenarios that I've listed, that's Buddhism. That's what Buddhism has done for me is the non-solidity of any arising. So I can, as something's presented to me as difficult or something's presented to me as particularly useful or joyous or any variance in between, there's so many stories that could be going on that nothing's solid anymore. And as frightening as that may sound to those who are looking for solidity, more solidity in life, most likely you're you're coming from a chaotic situation and you're just like, God, can it just, can it just ground itself? Can't I just get a little ground for a little while? As challenging as non-solidity is to present to someone who needs ground. Ultimately, it's the way that I've been able to relax and take it easy in this life and not um, end up in strong categories or with hard feelings. And I feel like all of that is compelling enough to practice more and more and develop this existence as a human being and as a spiritual being and taking up the curriculum of both. On today's episode, I'm going to field questions posed by people I've mentored in the last year. I asked what I should talk about, and some great ideas came in. And I'm doing this one solo to empty some of my notes over the last few weeks and address some of these questions. So let's start the show. 
everybody. I'm Jamie Carpenter. This is Love is the Author podcast. Thanks for listening. If you're new here, if you're returning, thank you as well. Taking a little time off to receive the download of nature, the past to live on the planet I have received in the form of COVID. And it has moved on, though it has left its traces, though minor, on our household. But more about that at some other time. I I don't want to drift off into that, but we're all doing okay. And uh, and I hope you're okay. You know, another another thing that happened today was in meditation, I was struck by presence. And I realized how interlocked the idea of presence and mindfulness is with Buddhism. And I was thinking that's unfair to presence, to be so stringently locked in with certain traditions. Because really, the Buddha doesn't have a monopoly on presence. The Buddha is someone who teaches us how to bring that presence into your life and as a way to view your life and experience life. But presence is presence, and it exists um, free from any tradition. Recently was my teacher's birthday, Vic Anderson, Vic was the bridge between myself and Tibetan Buddhism. It was his birthday on the 16th of January. You know, I had this experience yesterday, and I thought that this is a good way of talking about um, the kind of situation we get in with reward, especially as it pertains to our spiritual work. I was walking Billy, our dog. She's a cute mini golden doodle. She's almost three. She'll be three on the 31st of January. And she's a very unusual dog in the way that, well, I guess the part that's unusual is my perception, but she looks just like a teddy bear, but she's not really that affectionate. And she is, but she's very independent, sort of like a cat in a lot of ways, but a dog when it's convenient. (laughs) Anyway, I'm walking Billy and we always walk by my barber shop and my barber, Brenton, has uh, at some point since we've been living here, when I brought her by I brought I think I brought Billy by the shop pretty early on in my in my my tenure at his shop as a customer. Uh and that tenure may be imagined it may be completely imagined. Anyway, I brought Billy to the shop once and he gave her a treat. And now every time we walk by on our walk, she has it locked in that and she she starts to uh 
walk a little faster when we're in the block just before and I could feel her pulling and it's been this thing. She has it locked in that there's a potential treat waiting for her at this shop and it's every walk though. This treat exchange has only occurred maybe in the last three, four years, three times, but she has it in her mind that that's where the potential of a treat is. And it's this, she changes, her energy changes, and, and I, I can feel it through the leash. So yesterday, we're walking by, and there's nobody in the barbershop, and I'm experiencing this thing again. And she just really stares at the place, and she'll like get about a block away and still kind of stop and turn around and look back at it, like hoping something's still going to happen there. And this particular walk, we went another block or so and a FedEx truck pulled up on our walk. Like we kind of landed at the same spot at the same time. I was crossing the street and the driver said, oh gosh, she's so cute. And I was like, yeah, she is. And she said, could she have a treat? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. So Billy runs over to her and, uh, the woman gives her a little treat and is, you know, cuddling with her and it's really sweet. And it made me think about spiritual practice, how what once worked and where we were getting this reward, it felt like from our efforts, we started to build it in to our experience that, By doing such and such, this is what is beneficial from it. But the reward center of our spiritual practice seems to rotate and it changes. You know, what we might be getting so dramatically and so poignantly um, in one area, it moves and we may get benefit from the smallest, most non-spiritual seeming thing that all is also the yield. and the, So the reward moves. You know, it's a revolving reward. You don't know where it's going to land. And we shouldn't even really be doing it for one solid reward. Just I'm just discussing the benefits and the merit produced by having a spiritual practice. Okay. So where those exist, not saying we do it all for that. We certainly don't. We do it to be able to, to work with the difficult, you know, to turn our suffering into liberation, you know, but just as it pertains to reward, it's a revolving center. And just like how Billy found out that on all these walks, she could have never predicted that, On this particular day, just being at this place, all this confluence of events (laughs) brought her this treat in a new area. And that's kind of like, I have a message here from Jacqueline, and here's what Jacqueline says. Hi. um, I... I have like so many things in my mind right now from work and stuff. So sitting in the parking lot of this nursing home 
And when your message uh, got sent, I, the first thing I thought of for a topic, and this might not be interesting to anybody except for me, but I think what I have kind of hinted at with you lately and just what I've been thinking about is just like kind of an evolution of spiritual awakening. And like, you know, for me, I feel like it's been going on my whole life, but really it wasn't until last year um, that things became so much clearer and more open to me. But, you know, a year into it, I'm still feeling amazing and feel like I really can handle really anything well, but like, I still have this feeling of like, now what? How can I enhance my practice? How can I get to another level? Is there another level? Is there more I could be doing? Should I be, should I be traveling? Should I be just doing what I want to be doing? But you can't really do that all the time because I'm a mom and I work and I can't just fly off to Joshua Tree whenever I want. Does that make sense? How can I hone my practice besides the daily sitting? And that's so important. And that's the most important thing, really, honestly. Um, I don't know. Is that interesting? Do people fucking want to hear about that? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm always thinking about death because of my work. You can always talk about death um, or love. Yeah, those are my jam. Love and death. Okay, so... There's a question in here that's sort of like, okay, well, with spiritual practice, I found some resilience. I found uh, some fundamentals, it sounds like. She's found some stuff that's worked for her. It's really been honed in the last year. And you start to kind of look around and go, okay, well, what else she got? What else can we do? Um, when you get to that point, it's... I think a good question to ask yourself is, is this me looking for more because that's how I've been programmed is to accomplish? And is this me and my ambition? Am I ambitious on the path now? Am I looking for things because... I'm uncomfortable with this new place that I'm in, which is a new balance. Um, am I looking for something else to do to occupy my mind? Is that something that would be useful for me to do with this energy would be to dig a little deeper? It's a good question. You know, I don't have one prescribed answer for that, but I think that's something to ask yourself generally. You know, because a lot of us are not comfortable with, you know, not being in the creative process with something, you know, not uh, allowing ourselves to be in obsession. You know, sometimes we should really take the time that things are still to reflect, you know, and to be in that because that's a new norm. You know, that's something new. I know particularly for Jackie, who's a hospice worker and who's really just gone through this incredible last year of, of difficulty, just immense difficulty, you know, that enjoying it while it's good <laughs> and waiting for the challenge to find you, which it will, 
the challenge will find you. You know, it was one of the things my dad told me a while back. He was sort of like, I think that I was, I had this bent on really making sure that the kids understood responsibility and uh, that they, they um, understood challenge and they weren't getting to, or being raised too soft, even though, um, you know, it's a step in the right direction from the way things were intergenerationally in all families. But he said, you know, the challenge is going to find the kids. He said, they're going to be moving more into this world and, and suffering will be waiting for them as it has for the rest of us. Might as well sort of not expose them to any uh, bits unnecessarily for now. Let them enjoy when it's easy. And I thought that was really good advice. And it kind of feels very relevant to this. It feels like, okay, uh, am I getting inspiration here with this available space to dig deeper? And if so, the question really is, how can I know my heart more? How can I know my own heart? How can I get closer to myself? Because that extends immediately to others. See, we got it all backwards. And it's like, you know, we're a culture that, that overuses narcissist. It's just, it's narcissism and gaslighting are the two <laughs> words. <laughs> They're the ones that I fixate on the most uh, currently. And I know it's great to have references. It's to be able to refer to something that we all get as a reference. But a lot of people had to look up gaslight. Because it's not really a technical term. It's a motion picture term. <laughs> motion picture title, actually. So narcissism. Um, the idea of getting to know oneself. When we know ourselves, when we can love ourselves, it's the only true way to offer yourself to anyone. Your truth. So we got it backwards and we think that by being of service and by being loyal, just having this loyalty to things that, that that's the way to go. And that's nobility is to be loyal to something, but loyalty also can be very destructive, you know, and it can really add some blinders to life. And so we have to be cautious of this. It would behoove us to be cautious of our loyalty and just examine that notion. And so we need to start with ourselves with love anyway. We need to start with ourselves and, and extend that outward. And so coming back to Jackie, Jackie could use a break. Things are good after a long period of time of being very difficult. And so I don't know if you use that ambitiously to better yourself and to know yourself more or if you just rest that's the question i feel like this next one is from megan and megan's in buffalo and megan says so the things that came to mind immediately were the uh, like the emotional impact 
of, I'm not going to quote this exactly, but the statement I've heard you make that um, oh. your, your children, speaking of, have uh, loaned you out to do this work. And so I'm really interested in how that's showed up um, and like your internal landscape and, and theirs, um, how that how that's playing out. Um, what are the current pedestrian like struggles that still arise um, in your life and, and what do those look like? And love you. Bye. Okay. So to answer the first question and Megan is at a point where, and maybe you're at this point too, where you've done a significant amount of work and you're wanting to share yourself more with the world in a very direct way in indirect ways also. And those are always great. But I mean, in a distinguishable way, um, in a concentrated way, in a direct service way, where you look to offer yourself as a teacher or a mentor. Now, in this case, Megan is ready, and I, I deem Megan ready as, as someone who should be doing this work and offering herself. And so it's fully, fully sanctioned. And what Megan's talking about is I I mentioned before that I, I've had the realization that it's like my kids were basically loaning me out at an early age. They, uh, when I took up this path and this work professionally, um, it was through treatment centers. And the first treatment center was 60 miles away from where we live. So I would be gone for most of the day, four or five days a week. Long drives, two-hour drives each way, hour and a half. And I got the feeling, because this was the next right thing to do with myself, because it had shown up. You know, I didn't force this. I was myself. I had done some work leading up to this moment. Um, I had really, every day I was handing my, my, my life over to the universe to use me and asking very directly and having no other plan until this showed up. And when it did, you know, through the work of working with these, you know, a lot of them were, were 20-year-olds who were in this kind of like parentless state. They were like the, the, the orphans of our culture. Even if their parents are still alive, they, you know, had done the best that they could, which left the youth in a rut. And they were needing reparenting. But, you know, you can't come at it like that either. You know, I can't see myself as a parent. As a matter of fact, you know, I can't really see myself as responsible for anything other than my own actions. You know, everything else is just going to be interpretation and it's going to be whatever the byproduct is. And all I can do is focus on keeping my motivation really clear and keeping no harm as, as a mantra just all throughout the day. And by even saying that, by saying the no harm part, I just want you to know that sometimes the most skillful action can appear 
uh, in a way or can, can be um, something that you wouldn't normally do. Like, uh, you know, grabbing a kid's arm because they're running into traffic and yanking them back to safety. You know, that kind of action is like not something that you'd utilize in any other situation. But in that moment, it's the most skillful and keeps the person safe, you know? And so when I say pure motivation, I don't, I'm not trying to sound like someone that's holy, you know, but the pure motivation is just the no harm, you know, no harm to myself, no harm to others. And that just manifests in whatever way it does. So while doing this work though, with the 20 year olds, you know, I realized that this is, these are the leaders of tomorrow. And that was very clear to me throughout the time of the period of 2014, 2017, working at this treatment center in Malibu. These kids were the ones kind of like it was mentioned in Breakfast Club, where the custodian and the vice principal are are shooting the shit in a back office and one of them says, you know, a thought that keeps me up at night is that these kids are going to be the ones that take care of me later on. And the custodian says, I wouldn't count on it. You know, that's the idea is like the vice principal in that, in that movie sort of represents something that's happening with, that's happened with parenting. And so, you know, those, those parents who are out of touch with their kids needs, there's that deficit. And so by the time I got to them or they got to me, they were sort of in this orphan mentality and, and, and just looking for some solid support and something to look up to, you know, and, and, uh, it's a very tricky place to be, you know, to be designated as that person for people, you know, and it really takes a lack of self-importance with an equal amount of self-love you know and and so i i felt like i was the person for that designation i i was i i didn't self apply it i didn't uh it wasn't something that i tried to maintain you know it just it was i was the man of the moment you know i was the person at that particular time sort of like the big lebowski or something <laughs> like what sam elliot says you know every once in a while there comes a there comes a man <laughs> he's just the man for the time he just fits right in there something like that well that's what i was in this moment and so it and i i took care of that in the way of not making it an identity and i say all this to tie into megan's thing about you know my kids loaning me out to do this work i didn't have any context for being a dad who was away during the day. I didn't have any context for that, anything outside of like the long-standing patriarchal sort of system, you know, of the father away. And and then I saw this documentary on one of my favorite teachers who just, the thought of him makes me cry. Just his face. Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche. And I saw this documentary on him and his daughter was talking and she was in traditional rooms and uh, she was saying, you know, we used to bring uh, Rinpoche uh, meals and uh, he was always very kind to us. And she's talking about her dad. 
referring to him as Rinpoche. And, uh, you know, and I'm learning about the culture, so I, you know, but I'm, I'm hearing her refer to him more as a spiritual teacher. And she says, you know, we would come and, you know, we would bring him meals and he would, you know, and, uh, sometimes we might leave a meal outside of his door and other times we would spend the weekend with him or whatever. And she said, you know, I didn't even know until much later on that he was my father. I thought he was my guru, you know? And this idea of this, so this person, Dilga Kinsari Rinpoche, was like the father to all. He was just so kind. And I mean, beyond what had been sort of recorded prior to him, he just would always see someone, no matter what time it was, no matter how much he had worked, no matter how much he had heard stories all day, no matter how many important teachings. He, he's like a library, and he was holding all of Tibet's um, uh, sacred doctrines. He had memorized them all, and he was like a walking library. Sort of like I heard something similar in the Dave Chappelle, uh, Mark Twain special, where he's been given this award, and he said that his mother told him about some person in the in an African village who holds all the stories of the town. They said whenever one of these people died, it was like a library was burned down. Well, that's kind of what Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche was. But he would take a teaching from homeless people. He would take it to, like he would always see people. And he's this person who is just constantly giving. And, and there in Western culture, there isn't really a there isn't an equivalent to that in the mainstream. All we have is like, you're either out, you're somebody who works in my case, just speaking of the father situation, you're either father who works or father who stays at home or whatever, or, you know, but there isn't this person who can be so many things, you know, and seeing this story within Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche's gave me this context of like, finally, like, Oh, this makes sense because thinking about things micro, I am all of my designations within the household. You know, on the micro, I am that. I'm what I'm tied to financially. I'm what I'm tied to in blood relation. I'm those things. Outside of that, I'm so much all the time to so many, but mainly an offering to the suffering. I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who tends to the suffering, whether it be in a transactional experience or non, that's my life's, that's, that's my day to day, just in constant relationship with meeting the needs of others suffering. And that's, uh, I'm not a martyr. Um, knowing that about myself, uh, I'm not saying that that's a negative thing at all. And I'm not saying it's also, it doesn't really land anywhere. It just is what it is. It's where the work has taken me. And so having this context more globally of like thinking about, okay, well, a life is to tend to the needs of those that you bring into this world. I've always seen like Tiger and Sia, my children is like, they're all known from the universe I saw this very early on, like they're not my children. They are on loan from the universe and I'm here to care for them, you know? And so I need to find the ways that will 
that I'll be able to care for them. And as other roles or purposes of my existence have revealed themselves, finding a way to tend to those as well respectfully and have this all be some balance that can be struck. And so I remember having conversations, you know, I'd bring the kids out to Malibu because it's like, well, I want them to enjoy, um, you know, I remember the first couple of times I took them out to dad's work, you know, and it's like by the beach and there's like rescue animals and, you know, kind of a wonderlandy thing. Like uh, it's, a, it's certainly entertaining for a child to be in, to be by the beach, to, uh, to see a deer, to pet a deer, you know, and, um. Uh, and so at, I would always talk to them about what it is that I do and what my role was. And, and they very kindly and compassionately have always been supportive of this. And I've told them that in those years that I was working in treatment specifically for like six years or so, that that was a time that I was going to work hard so that we could hang out a lot more. And I said, and for now you're loaning me out to people who to boys and girls who don't have mothers or fathers or whose mothers or fathers were harmful, who harm themselves now. And that I have a way of, of, of being able to reach these people you know, and the kids were just always supportive and everything I said that I would do for them, maintaining consistency with the things that are important is everything. You know, of course we need to be adaptable and of course life is very fluid, but with these very core things like raising a child, you know, just going to your own heart and going, where did it hurt me in life? And how can I be the offering to my this generation that I've brought in? How can I be the offering? And so I have tended by showing up to those areas that I've, I remember from my past and also whatever their needs are, the kids' needs. And they saw that period of time as sort of loaning me out. And I have had to prioritize time that's just for them throughout the process you know to keep the household sacred you know to keep uh you know this whole thing doesn't work for me if someone especially my own children are left out you know this has to be cross-pollinated benefit you know and that's really what it is is like there's this cross-pollination of benefit that that goes on as we continue on this path, you know, with our diligence and our sincerity and things just end up not only taking care of themselves, but one area supports another, supports another, supports another. And it's like a gigantic tree with those big old roots, you know, it's like all of them are essential to the balance, even though they're, they're individual, at least in, they're seeming and seemingly individual. And so that's maybe the answer to the first question is sort of like the kids have loaned me out. And one of the other features of this 
what I've seen is sort of like, what I notice is that there's interdependence in this work. There's interconnectedness from this moment to our future. This moment is the future. This is the seed of some future fruit. The work that I do with people is setting up a future that's more safe than it was. And so person by person that we work with is sort of like an investment in a softer future, in a more gentle future, in a more thoughtful or mindful future. And so this work during the week felt like I'm setting up the weekend for there to be less drunk drivers, for there to be less ODs, for there to be less people on the brink And that would keep my kids safe. Is that this whole thing, as we work with each individual, it makes the world just a little safer when you give someone your attention. My kids loan me out to give them a safer world. And that's the way I see it. And my promise to them of having more time has come true. You know, the further I've gone down the road of being, uh, you know, for years it was a spiritual director of a couple treatment centers and now it's just a spiritual mentor. The more that I've done this work, I've been able to design it more, to be more intentional and to give them more focus. And especially at this age, as important as it is at all ages to be present and as sufficient as I feel like my presence was in their life early on, you know, to get some foundation of emotional strength and that now at this age uh, where they're teenagers essentially um, it's really valuable to have more flexibility and free time to be able to tend to their needs and I'm sure you can imagine that and then the second part of Megan's question was like the pedestrian like difficulties of like just being human. What are the pedestrian challenges? You know, for a long time it was, um, it was uh, keeping the house neat. Uh, it, it had become a challenge to not clean up constantly. And it's that old thing of just trying to set up some future moment that, that will never come of rest, you know, where we're just like, Oh, well if I, if I clean up all this, then I'll be able to relax when I get to that point, but then there's something else to do. And, you know, so that's that not being a busy body, my ambitions just calm down and I'm not worried about the Instagram count. Um, I'm not, um, an active content creator. <laughs> uh, and, um, Instagram seems to be doing just fine and my schedule is full and uh, it's a very um, amazing life. And it's busy, but just the right amount. And um, and I feel like I'm having a quality of life. So Celia wrote, and Celia says, I'm still catching up on Mystical Cynical, but one of the last episodes I listened to the other day, you spoke about someone you knew. I believe a Westerner who really devoted himself to Aya ceremonies, 
But then he fell into this depression because he attached his identity so strongly to those spaces. I also think you mentioned someone else saying to you that this medicine is only to be sat with so many times in a lifetime. I know a lot of mystical types who have sat many times and maybe don't have a glimpse into this perspective, or maybe they don't take the time to think more critically about why they need to sit with it so frequently. I'm curious if you have any further insights into the notion that it's not necessary to sit so frequently. Maybe there's not much else to be said on the topic, but I think I thought I'd inquire or suggest a topic of further exploration. So, yeah, this is great. And actually, that was uh, that was on the Miguel Rivera episode of uh, Love is the Author. Anywho, yeah, the, uh, the friend, this is uh, somebody that, that really immersed himself in the culture of, of uh, the Ayahuasquero culture and did everything right and really knew his stuff and was young, respectful, um, and did Ayahuasca monthly for uh, years. And at one point, he came out of one of these things, and this is probably, I don't know, we're talking more than 30 ayahuasca ceremonies probably. Some people take it up like it's a monastic, part of their monasticism to be an ayahuascaro and to belong to that tradition and that it's this regular clearing of purification, you know, and that's like a whole religion. And so he's about as legit as it came. Such respect and uh, was an avid sweat lodger, but young, a very young person, um, a great artist. Uh, his, uh, yeah, his art is so great. Anyway, then the bottom dropped out on one of these trips. It just got really dark and he never came, he didn't come out of it for a long while. And I would talk to him in these deficits. He was such a connected person. He was always so enthusiastic and so kind and so funny. He could drop on a dime and be so funny and do an impression or something. And kind of like, a, a, like what most people would consider to be sort of a, like a, a, like an old school health food store hippie, but a young a young person, you know, ponytail and sort of like the hiking boots. And, the, and he was just, it was like in the awe of deficit. Oh, that's a place. The awe of deficit, like feeling it all slip away. What made you, what gave you joy, you know? your normal routines. He had to move back in and live with his mother and father, which he had gone to many lengths to not live with them. And now he's like reduced to his childhood bedroom. And, and he was, you know, trying to find, feel his way through back to himself. And of course, I mean, I'm sharing this story and it sounds pretty bad, but he recovered and he's an amazing artist, an amazing person and got married and the story ends well. But when I told Miguel at the sweat lodge about what had happened to this friend 
and he had met him. I'd introduced the two of them. We'd sweat together and, and he just said, you know, that's, it's, these medicines are not meant to be used that often, you know? And, and that's one, that's an opinion. I mean, Miguel is my teacher and I would never want to say anything against it, but he's talking about one way and he's saying like, Hey, you know, there's a point where we got to work with the information that we've been given and we got to integrate that. And when we don't, things can turn, you know, because it's a buildup of information. So much of it's not integrated. And I think as intentional as my friend was living, I think that was sort of the idea was that, that he was somebody who was living so intentionally and so on the land and so respecting all these different traditions, Native American tradition and uh, traditional Peruvian traditions and indigenous traditions. He's immersed in it. And I think, you know, that's the danger with regular sits is that if you are somebody who is an intentional person, you kind of think, well, I'm like integrating this into my experience like all the time, you know, but we could use a break from all of what we do. We have a buildup of information and sometimes it takes longer than in between ayahuasca circles. Sometimes it takes longer than, you know, the next shipment of your psilocybin chocolates. You know, sometimes... We have to explore the subtle. You know, it's not always very obvious. And our ideas of time, haven't they always gotten in the way? (laughs) Isn't our idea of time why people are late? I was thinking about ego a few days ago, and I coined a phrase, I think, the great anticipator. It feels like that's what ego is. Is that which is constantly on the defense and anticipating what's next to shield ourselves or to appropriately numb ourselves. Ego, the great anticipator. Another thing that came up is that money doesn't solve the problem of popularity. So we all want money because of the freedom we think that it'll afford us. But the more money we get, the more people want to be around us just because of our money. And the more people alter who they are around us because of the money. And so the money ends up giving you financial freedom, so to speak, but it does not free you from the problem of popularity. And that's something that I think most people seem to find. It's said in a variety of ways. It's said in the way of like, it's lonely at the top. Or money can't buy you happiness. The happiness that's spoken of here is just, the happiness that can be afforded to someone with money is the kind that doesn't last, unfortunately. It buys temporary moments, but no one thinks about how lonely it gets and how much people, how, the distance, no one thinks about the distance that money creates. You know, there's this movement currently, and the movement is masked YouTubers 
and these masked YouTubers, a lot of them, uh, my son is into my daughter. And there are people who don't show their face and they have millions of subscribers and millions of followers or whatever. And there's some of the biggest stars in the world that you may not have heard of because you don't have teenagers, but they're taking over the music. Like they're making songs and like for a minute, the number one podcast, even over Joe Rogan's was this new podcast that's by these two YouTubers who are a part of the universe that my kids pay attention to anyway there's a trend that's happening where they don't reveal their faces these youtubers like they come into the game with a mask on and they maintain that and as a means of holding on to their you know some in some cases there's uh dysmorphia you know they, they don't see themselves uh as attractive and so they're wanting to hide that and other people do it for privacy and then every once in a while someone will go like well maybe when i get to five million subscribers i'm going to do a face reveal or an eye reveal or whatever somebody recently just did an eye reveal and i guess that was a big deal for them because of how bad their dysmorphia is a young person like 15 16 anyway This movement is oddly beneficial. I mean, I looked at it skeptically early on, just kind of like seemed like people were messing with the kids or something. But thinking about this, my son listens to, he's 14 and he started listening to podcasts and it's of these YouTubers and they they are people who my son is into because of who they are like really who they are, what they have to offer and not because of the way that they look, which I feel like is a really important thing that's happening. And it's a movement that's that within the YouTube, the youth community and these stars within it, it's really cool to, to, to know that my son is basically into this person because he thinks that they're really interesting and they have something to offer at the core level, you know, that has nothing to do with their looks. And I just wanted to give a, like a wave of the mystical wand. I want to give the magical unicorn hummingbird hybrid blessing to these YouTubers for this for being good examples in my son's life and my daughter's life. Mike One-Shot Coulter, who has his own episode a few episodes back, Mike wrote me and asked me to talk about when we have the capacity to let ourselves go completely into an obsession or we fear of it. And he was talking about the Beatles doc which I could go on and on about and I will in some other episode probably with him. But he's talking about this odd obsession that happened with this and what happens when obsessions find us and do we fear them or do we completely allow ourselves to go into it? 
as far as obsessions these days, and uh, by the way, you know, the, the doc had a profound effect on me. I mean, it was profound. And I, I can see that it could be the kind of thing to crave because it's a feeling that I didn't know existed in the world. That's what happened to me when I watched that. And that's just the right combination of events, being a diehard Beatle fan and uh, story collector of theirs. And, you know, just I've spent maybe the exact amount of time I have studying Buddhism on the Beatles, like the, the same amount. I mean, just been obsessed, right? And so seeing this, I seeing this documentary, I it revealed a feeling that I didn't know existed. I think Mike found the same thing. And so what do we do with that? I mean, what's cool about finding an obsession like that, finding something that's so compelling, is that it lets me know that it exists in the world and so I can relax. And that's something to think about with this, is when the notion of like, wow, I'm so fucking into this this is great when that thing shows up it doesn't have to derail your life you know knowing that it exists and that it spontaneously arose and that none of your planning had anything to do with it and it's not something you birthed and it doesn't seem to be something that's going away we can relax and we don't have to fall into the staunch obsessive sort of the it takes over your whole life thing it's an aspect of life that you now know about. And so I feel like you can relax knowing that it's there and that this world that we live in created it. So there must be more. How's that? Hey, thanks for listening. I think I'm going to wrap up now. When I say I love you, I don't mean because you love me. When I say I love you, it's because you are me. I am you and you are me and we are all together. Hey, until next time. Thanks for listening.